there's just a real atmosphere of peace in here as we uh, listen to the psalms of God being sung. I'll invite you now as we go to the word of God to turn to the passage Kevin read for us earlier, John chapter 10. has for that is uh, I am the good shepherd of course those are the words of Jesus so we're going to uh, don't have any better title than that that's what we'll work with Jesus is the good shepherd <clears throat> but uh, we'll review a little bit and then we'll proceed last week in the gospel of John we witnessed the miracle of a man who was born blind receiving his sight. We saw that through his, though his blindness was not a result of any particular sin on his part, it was a clear reminder of the sinful state of all humanity. Our very nature implicates us as sinners, and of course his blindness was a result of disease and the result of sin indirectly, and we are all spiritually blind from birth. We saw Jesus first smearing mud on the blind man's eyes as if to emphasize the reality and depth of his blindness, then commanding him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, a pool fed by water typical of the living water Jesus promised that he would provide. The streams fed the pool of Siloam. We saw the man's faith as he obeyed. He went and he washed and he came back seeing we saw that this whole transaction was a picture of human beings born in sin, receiving spiritual sight and spiritual life only through the direct intervention of Christ through the gospel. Jesus opens our eyes, and we see, and we believe, and we are saved. The central theme in John chapter 9 was not the healing of the man's physical blindness, but his receiving spiritual sight. Through the chapter, we saw him responding to the Pharisees' interrogation and intimidation with increased, increasing boldness and clarity. And all of this before he had a chance to see Jesus with his physical eyes. His testimony before the enemies of Christ resulted in his excommunication from the synagogue. Unlike his parents who had re refused to defend him for fear of the Jews, this man stood firm in his testimony demonstrating that God had already done a work of grace in his heart. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus found the man and asked him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in the Messiah? The man replied, And who is he, sir, that I might believe him? Jesus responded, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. We noted, last, we noted last week that though this was the first time the man had seen Jesus with physical eyes, Jesus assured him that he had already seen him. God had already brought him to life spiritually, given him eyes to see and believe. And so it was a result of this gift of life that the man answered, Lord Jesus, answered Jesus, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. 
Jesus then summed up the spiritual significance of everything that had just happened by saying, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not, who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. By this he meant that he came to bring spiritually dead, spiritually blind people to saving faith. But he also came to expose and confront those who insist that they can see just fine on their own. Some of the Pharisees heard this and asked him, Are we also blind? In effect, they were challenging him to speak against their vast learning and their piety and their positions as interpreters of the law, as leaders and shepherds for their people. Jesus' response was a real zinger. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. There is a kind of willful blindness that is so arrogant it actually thinks it is spiritual sight. It is a blindness that has access to the word of God but chooses to view it merely as a moral code or a self-help manual rather than as the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those who say that they see but continue in their self-righteousness are guilty of gross negligence. Yet those who are blind and know it and who receive as a gift the sight granted by Christ are guiltless before God. That's why Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. The blind, there is, there is hope as the blind acknowledge their blindness. I've chosen to summarize last week's message like this because as we enter chapter 10, we pick up the continuing dialogue between Jesus and these same Pharisees who see themselves as shepherds of the sheep of Israel. Once again, we will see the words of Jesus dividing the truth from the false, separating light from darkness, the seeing from the blind. Rather than continuing with the metaphor of blindness for the Pharisees, he switches now to that of shepherds and sheep. We're about to see how Jesus is uniquely qualified as the good shepherd over against those who have no right to be leading the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 1, begins with the words, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. These are very emphatic words used to focus the listener's attention. It's like saying, the fact is, or this is the way it is, sit up and take notice, I'm about to speak absolute truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus never begins a teaching session with these words, verily, verily but he uses them to amplify what he has already been teaching. So we can see that the chapter division between 9 and 10 is man-made and does not help us to understand the text. You have to remember that those chapter divisions were not part of the original text. But if we do connect chapter 9 and chapter 10, we see that Jesus is really, what, Jesus is really going on to clarify the nature of of the blindness and the guilt that he has just identified in the Pharisees. Let's read uh, verse 9, verse 41, and 10, verse 1 together. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and the robber. But he who enters by the door 
is the shepherd of the sheep. Now that seems like an abrupt transition. But in the Gospel of John, we find many of those. Jesus doesn't necessarily stay with the same thought. There's many things interlaced together. We need to pause for a moment to establish in our minds an image of a first century Israeli sheepfold. It's a large stone structure with walls 10 to 12 feet high. And there are thorns and brambles around the top, the way that some fences have barbed wire or razor wire to keep out or to de deter intruders. The sheepfold fold is most often a communal property shared by several shepherds and their flocks. It has one door which is guarded by a gatekeeper or a porter. That's where my name is found in the scriptures. When the only the King James though, uh, when the shepherds bring their flocks in after a day of grazing, they lead them into that fold and leave them under the care of the gatekeeper. When the shepherds return in the morning, they, jet, they must first be identified by the gatekeeper, who then opens the door. From the doorway, the shepherds call their sheep, and when each sheep recognizes the voice of their own shepherd, they leave and they follow him. They will not follow any shepherd but their own. With that background in mind, we need to understand that the sheepfold rep what the sheepfold represents in the light of Christ's ministry. It does not represent the church. That's the first thing we start to think. But it doesn't, because Jesus does not lead his sheep out of the church. It does not represent heaven, because the thieves and the robbers are seen as entering in, climbing in, finding an alternate way. It, repre it represents Judaism, the Judaism of the Pharisees, who set themselves as custodians of Israel. The sheepfold encompasses the sheep or the people of Israel. Yet according to Jesus' words, the shepherds now leading Israel have no right to be doing so. They are thieves and robbers, climbing over the wall rather than entering through the gate. They do not call the sheep, they capture the sheep, presumably to profit from their sale or slaughter. Now I believe Ezekiel speaks prophetically of these shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34. You can turn there if you like, and we'll just read a couple of verses, verses 2 through 4. And there are, by the way, there are so many passages about shepherds in the Old Testament. I sometimes dread to read them as a pastor. Because they are very, very specific on the role of a shepherd and how idle shepherds or shepherds that do not fulfill their call, they actually come under God's judgment. Ezekiel 34, 2-4. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. That is a character sketch of the Pharisees. And we saw, we saw an example how when, the, when this man dared to even imply that Jesus was Messiah, out of, the, out of the, he was immediately expelled from the synagogue. Now, of course, Ezekiel 
also refers to those leading Israel in his day. But his words typify and anticipate false leaders or shepherds, including the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Surely the Pharisees were familiar with these passages of Scripture that talk about the shepherds and would be either provoked or convicted by Jesus' stark portrayal of them breaking into the fold. Now, having identified the sheepfold, we must also identify the door. And please don't make the mistake of thinking that every time Jesus uses the word door, it's a sustained metaphor. It's not. There are three separate doors in this passage. It's very key to understanding it. In this case, the door is not Jesus himself, for Jesus enters the door. The door represents the legitimate means for the shepherd to enter and lead out his sheep. The one who enters the door is the true shepherd. Such a one must enter in a lawful way, not in an illegal way, as the thieves and robbers did. Consider all the things that Jesus did in order to qualify as shepherd of Israel. He was born of a virgin and belonged to the covenant people of Israel. He was born in Bethlehem, the royal city of the shepherd king, David. He kept the whole law perfectly, and in him the Father was well pleased. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet never sinned. Only to such a qualified individual would the doorkeeper grant access. We've already studied in John chapter 1 about the doorkeeper, though we didn't identify him as such. He was the one who cried out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. He was the one who said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist came teaching that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law that foreshadows all the law foreshadowed in its sacrifices, its offerings, and its rituals. He identified Jesus not only as the sin-bearing lamb, and, but also as the true shepherd of Israel. And he never came out and said Jesus was the true shepherd of Israel, but that was the intent. John opened the door so that the shepherd of Israel could come in and lead out his sheep. <laughs> Though the sheepfold here represents Judaism and Israel, it's not hard to understand a parallel to Jesus calling Gentile sheep the sheep of another fold. Another fold. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. You see, every citizen of this world is born into a sheepfold, a place of temporary security. The security may be Judaism, or any other ism, including atheism. But the only real security is found not in a structure, but in a shepherd who calls his sheep, knows them by name, and lays himself down for them. The doorkeeper opens, and he calls, and the sheep come. John the Baptist was the specifically assigned doorkeeper for Israel, but in a general sense, the Holy Spirit is the doorkeeper, the one who opens the door so that the sheep can have access to their shepherd. Otherwise, they remain in the fold and cannot go out and find pasture. 
Now let's go back to our text in verse 3. To him that is Jesus, the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We find here a beautiful illustration of how Jesus calls and saves people. First, there's a general call. As the shepherd stands in the doorway, he raises his voice in such a way to get attention of all the sheep in the fold. Remember that the, light, the fold likely contains sheep from several shepherds. All the sheep hear his voice. Their heads pop up, their ears perk up, and there may be a variety of responses. Perhaps there is some stirring among the shepherd's own sheep, but to others it is a call that can be easily ignored. What a beautiful picture of the proclamation of the gospel. The true shepherd's voice rings out whenever the gospel is preached. And it rings out amid a tangle of other voices who are also crying out and also wanting to lead their sheep out. In some of the sheep, it produces curiosity. In others, confusion. And in still others, comfort. But it is a voice proclaimed clearly for all the sheep to hear. Now, some people would say that this is the full extent of the gospel call. Just get the message out and allow the sheep to deal with the call wherever they see fit. And as far as men and as far as women, that is perhaps the limitation of the call. But there is another aspect to this. We don't just assume that the sheep will choose. There's more to this call. Yes, there's the general call, but then there is an effectual call. Notice that he calls each of the sheep by name. These sheep already belong to him, but it is only when they hear him call their name that they come to him and come out of the sheepfold. Did you, did you know that when we see the word church in the New Testament, it is most often a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is calling out his sheep. What we see here is Jesus calling his true church out of the false structure of Judaism and later out of another sheepfold, whatever ism that may happen to be. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus knows his sheep. When they hear his voice, they are comforted, but when they hear their name, they are compelled. He leads them out, and as it says in verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and his own follow them, for they know his voice. In the apostle, the same apostle that wrote the Gospel of John, in his third letter, we see him as a shepherd using his Lord's example to practice, uh, putting the Lord's example into practice as he addresses the people he cares for as an under-shepherd. His letter closes like this. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Now, a little issue with the ESV translators. Greet the friends, every one of them is kind of weak. Because it's really saying, greet every, the friends, every one of them by name. 
That's what it means, every one of them, by name. There is something beautiful about being greeted by name and recognized by name. And this is how Jesus calls his own. My friends, the Lord, oh, uh, pardon me, I got mixed up here. Uh, when Jesus met Mary Magdalene in the garden after his resurrection, she was deeply grieved and she didn't even recognize who he was. She thought he was a gardener. But when he spoke her name, he just said, Mary. The blindness of grief cascaded from her eyes. And she said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. My friends, the Lord Jesus seeks his sheep and then calls him, calls them. He calls them specifically and individually and in an unmistakable way. His sheep hear his voice amid the cacophony of shepherds' voices. And they hear that voice calling their name. It is an effectual call. Can you think of one place where Jesus called a name where it absolutely was an effectual call? Lazarus, come forth. It's a name that when called gives life. In the fact, the text makes it very clear that a stranger will not follow, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We might ask the question, how did Jesus come to be the shepherd of his sheep? How did they know, how did they come to know his voice? Did they at some time in the past choose him over all the other shepherds, drawn by his tenderness and compassion? Well, the answer has already been provided for us in John chapter 6, which we studied earlier. Let's look at verse 37. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's John 6, 37, if you're looking it up. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what precedes the coming is the giving of the sheep by the Father to the Son. This is an effectual call. It accomplishes its purpose. The sheep belong to Jesus because the Father has given them to him by an act of his own will. Jesus goes out seeking and calling and drawing to himself all that the Father has already given to him. It's not a matter of the sheep's preference. It is a matter of the shepherd's sovereignty. In Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, the Apostle Paul beautifully places the shepherd's effectual call of his sheep in the context of God's redemptive purpose. Just listen for the word call as I read this passage. Romans 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not only is Christ's call for his sheep effectual, 
it is also everlasting. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In the language of that passage in Romans, those whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. He will never cast them out. What did they do to the blind man, the seeing blind man, when he confessed that Jesus was Messiah? The very words, they cast him out. So just think of the contrast between Jesus and the Jews, the Pharisees. They have just cast this man out of the synagogue, ironically for the sole crime of hearing and heeding the voice of their shepherd, of his shepherd. There is no security in their system because it is a system completely dependent upon human effort, human wisdom, human piety, and human pride. But the man who is cast out of the synagogue is cast into the arms of Jesus, finding in him the security so lacking in Judaism. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Even the man's own parents tiptoed around the Pharisees' fear-based control of the people. Yet this man, who received his sight from Jesus, would not follow a stranger, or just as our text says, he did not heed, he was not intimidated by the voice of the Pharisees, as his parents were, nor did, he, nor did he yield to their despotic control. He ignored their voices, rejected the false security of the synagogue, and when Jesus later revealed himself to them, he recognized his shepherd's voice. He believed and he worshipped him. The blind man saw. The seeing man remained blind. With great patience, Jesus goes on to teach these seeing blind men further, using the image of a door. We've already seen the door that represents, or that opens for the true shepherd, but we're about to see a second door, a door through which the sheep can make their exit from the tyranny of the false shepherds. Jesus says here in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So now in contrast to the door through which the shepherd enters, we have the door through which the sheep exit. And that door is none other than Jesus Christ. God's true sheep, his elect, have never been drawn away by impostors. They can smell thieves and robbers a mile away and will not listen to them. True, there have been times in the history of Israel when the people were seduced for a time by false prophets, but God has always kept a remnant for himself. This faithful, persecuted remnant cannot and will not be lost and will never be permanently seduced by the voice of a strange shepherd. Only by hearing the shepherd call their name and being led out by him is this remnant flock preserved. Friends, Jesus is still calling out his flock. He is still adding to his flock those whom the Father has given him. We read in the book of Acts, but as many as were appointed to salvation believed. 
And the door through which those sheep exit the domain of false teachers and the tyranny of the law and the stairs of the devil is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the door by which the sheep exit from the bondage that they are in. Matthew 11, verses 27 to 30, I just want to read this passage. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are le- le- weary and are la- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your, your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me. This is the call of the shepherd. Now you will never, I don't think you will, ever hear your name called literally by Jesus. That happened a few times in Scripture. But the effectual call is such that you know that the message that you are hearing of Jesus Christ and his blood, which was shed for sin, was shed for your sin. And that his righteousness, which is imputed to everyone who trusts in him, is imputed to you. And you believe that because the Father has given you Faith and the Holy Spirit has given you faith to believe that, has brought you to life, has given you eyes to see. There is no other way to receive that message. It is contrary to the nature that is in man. Yet the invitation is come. The invitation is given to all. But there is a there is a call, there is a urgent, undeniable call beyond that general invitation when the gospel is preached and that gospel reaches a human heart and penetrates it and changes it and brings it to life. There's still a third door which is described described in verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters enters, not an exit, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So we have the door of the shepherd, then we have the door of the sheep, and now we have the door of salvation. As Jesus is the door of the sheep through which they exit sin's domain, he is also the door of salvation, the door to a whole new sheepfold. The sheep move in and out of this fold. But their security is not in the structure, it is in the shepherd itself, himself. He is with them, within the fold and without. I would say a good way to think of the fold is the assembly of the saints together. We gather together, we're drawn together. And the Lord provides for us within the fold, but then we go out and he takes care of us outside of the fold as well. He is always with us. Just as it says in the 23rd Psalm. And this has beautiful meaning when we consider Jesus, the great shepherd. I'm going to read it again, though we read it earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Just think of this poor man cast out of the synagogue, rejected even by his parents. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare before a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will never cast him out. Wherever Jesus leads, there is security. Whether it is in green pastures and still waters or through the valley of the shadow of death or into the presence of our enemies. Jesus is the shepherd, but he is also the door into the freedom and the security that is found only in him. Now we are nearly at the end of the passage I wanted to cover, just the first ten verses. But just I, w- I want to uh, draw our attention to a passage in Ezekiel ch- chapter 34. I already read the description of the false shepherds from this passage. But I want to read the description of the true shepherd that is also found in Ezekiel chapter 34. You'll see how beautifully this intersects with Jesus' identification of himself as the good shepherd. Uh, Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd leads out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places wherever they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick dark darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. Now you can, uh, just to pull everything together... This is specifically for Israel, but in the passage we read, and we will discuss this next time, the the other sheep are also addressed. So there is the idea of drawing Israel's sheep, but also drawing sheep from among the nations, and then making of them one flock with one shepherd. That is the biblical church, the biblical people of God. Listen to how Jesus treats his sheep. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land on rich pasture, and they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." Just a little bit further on, we see something that is unmistakable in identifying Jesus 
as the shepherd. We've already heard that the Lord is saying, I will shepherd my sheep. Well, in verse 23, the Lord says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now his servant David, that is not referring to, literally, to King David. But the greater shepherd whom David represents. David is the prot- prototype of the messianic king. It is from the line of David that Jesus comes. So Jesus is David's greater son. He is the good shepherd. David understood, at least in part, that there was a shepherd coming after him, a shepherd king, when he wrote Psalm 23. I will set, them, I will set up over them one shepherd. So not only is the Lord the shepherd, but the servant whom he will send is the shepherd. In other words, they are one and the same. Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, the Servant of God, and very God. He is God Himself. And then at the end of chapter 34, And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So if the Pharisees were tracking with Jesus and understanding his illusion and him calling himself the true shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, they could not miss that he was declaring his own deity and that he was declaring himself to be the great shepherd David, the one who would be over all of the sheep. Let's close our passage here in verse 10. Where it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I've just read about the abundant life. And what a shame it is that so many pastors and so many shepherds would take this abundance to mean temporal wealth. To mean the... the, the, the things that we, we lust for in our natural minds. Just to have all of our life laid out before us. The provision of Jesus takes us through the valley of death. The provision of Jesus takes us to the presence of our enemies and provides for us in all of those situations. Just as the real blindness of the blind man was spiritual. So the real need, the real, the real um, absence in our lives is for the spiritual blessing, for the peace that comes from knowing God and knowing that He is with us in every situation. Now the punchline here, and I'm just going to have to stop here because it's a good, as good a place as any. In fact, it's a very good place to end the message. The last part of, or I think it's verse 11. I am the good shepherd. We just read in Ezekiel 34, You are my sheep, 
I am your God, declares the Lord of Israel. Here's Jesus saying, I am your shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When did God ever lay down his life for the sheep? In the person of Jesus Christ, he did. He made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. The Son of God, who did not think it robbery to be equal with God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God is highly exalted and given him a name that is above every name. So that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The good shepherd, Jesus, laid down his life for his sheep. As the gospel testimony bears out in John and all of the other gospels, as all of the prophets bear witness. Jesus paid a price in order that he could call and securely draw the sheep that the Father had given him. And the price was his blood. That was the purchase price. And that timeless act, which, was, which came to be at the, at the appropriate time that God had ordained, secured salvation for all who would come to God on his terms through faith. And those who come, come completely by grace. It is not of works. The grace is not of works. The faith is not of works. It is the gift of God, so that no man can boast any more than that blind man could boast about receiving his sight or generating his own sight. Trust it. It's been encouraging to you. Let's close in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you do open blind eyes. I thank you, Lord, that even for people who hold out and profess their own self-righteousness, there is still hope because really that is the nature of the human heart. And it is only through an act of grace that a selfish, pharisaical, self-righteous heart can be turned and more than eyes that are blind can be opened. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel is still going out, that the voice of the shepherd is still being proclaimed at the entrance to the sheepfold. We thank you, Lord, that there is still an effectual call, that you are still calling out sheep to be yours, sheep that are yours, and sheep that recognize your voice when you are called. Perhaps even today, Lord, there is someone here who understands now that the blood of Jesus Christ really does apply to them and that the shepherd has really given his life for them. 
I pray, Lord, that you would sovereignly draw them, that they would come out, and that they would follow you. And Lord, then that they would come in, Lord, that they would come in to the security that is in Jesus Christ, and that they would go in and out and find pasture. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now for supper.